Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This morning we're opening the Scriptures to Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. The word of the Lord. Heavenly Father, we rejoice that we have such ready access to your written word. We have multiple copies in our homes. It can travel with us on our phones. Oh Lord, help us to not be neglective of reading your word often throughout our weeks. This morning we have the public reading and explaining of your word here in church. And we pray that the unction of your spirit now rest upon us upon Andrew in his speaking, and upon us in our listening. Pray that we would be encouraged, challenged, and empowered to go into our week to live lives that reflect who we are as your children. And in the name of our Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. Mark used the word unction. How many of you use that regularly in your, the, uh, it, it's a good word, it's the, I, I love it when he sometimes will say that, but it's this idea that the, what we're doing here is not just me talking to you, uh, but there is a, a spiritual aspect to it, and by spiritual, I, I mean the spirit is really engaged, and, and that's what we, we pray for. Uh, as we come together is that, you know, my words to you aren't just Andrew's words to whatever your name is, uh, but that it's the spirit that grabs hold of my words and your heart and brings them together in God's power. There we go. That's it on unction. Uh, another word for you, Advent. Uh, Advent is uh, where we are in, in this calendar, liturgical calendar, and, and we pay attention to Advent for a couple of reasons. One, I mean, it does lead us into Christmas, and, you know, we certainly want to celebrate the, the festival of the Incarnation, if you will, uh, but, but Advent is not Christmas. Uh, Advent is about waiting, it's about anticipation, it's about longing, it's about hoping for the light to penetrate the darkness. Here's how a friend of mine, Steve Garber, uh, put it. Uh, he says, Advent is a strange word, even as it is a wonderful word. To enter in uh, to Advent, we, we purposely place ourselves in tension Knowing what we know about the world, can we, will we actually believe that someday, somehow, everything sad will become untrue? 
So that's what it means to enter into Advent, that we, we live with this tension, knowing what we know about the world. Will it be that everything sad someday, somehow, will become untrue? And, and when we do that, he goes on to say, the days of December have a promise written into their meaning, a promise that this bent, broken world is not the final word, uh, but there will be one day, a day when there will be no more tears. That, that's, that's what we are engaged in this Advent season, pushing into the bent, broken, uh, dark, dim shadow lands. Those of you who were in the marriage class, we talked about marriage as being this dance in the shadow lands. Um, we, we press into that with the hope that there is something more real than we oftentimes experience. And to help us in this, and then also to engage us really all the way to Easter, is the book of Hebrews. And uh, as I was thinking about which series we should do next, my you know, there are different things that you think of with regards to Advent, but my heart was really led to, to the book of Hebrews because this is exactly what the people in the first century were struggling with. Uh, you saw that verse that we read in that litany at the very beginning from Hebrews chapter 12, where the preacher, uh, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, says to the people, he says, lift your drooping hands uh, strengthen your weak knees. Why does he say that? Well, because that was the context which called forth the book of Hebrews. Uh, this was a first century church. Maybe in Italy there's uh, some greetings at the end of the book to other churches that are in Italy, maybe around Rome, uh, who is experiencing a lot of discouragement. Uh, there is personal discouragement, uh, like we've talked about in terms of drooping hands, weak knees. There's communal discouragement. They've been uh, struggling with persecution in various ways. So we come to a place like Hebrews chapter 10, where the preacher says, you recall the former days when after you were enlightened, after you became Christians, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those uh, who were so treated, for you had compassion on those in prison, you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, uh, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So he's, he's giving them spiritual encouragement, but he's also letting us know, like, this is what we're struggling with. I mean, we're living in a world where our property is being plundered, we're being thrown into prison, there is reproach, there is uh, shame, ridicule, all of these different things, so much so that repeatedly this, this preacher keeps saying, don't give up. You know, keep looking at Jesus. Don't drift away. Don't fall away. We, these are kind of the well-known warning passages in Hebrews. We find it in chapter 3, in chapter 4, in chapter 6, in chapter 10. Uh, but all of these, they are warnings, but they're also exhortations to stay strong. 
uh, exhortations to not give up, to, to don't stop uh, trusting in Jesus, don't stop believing in Him. And I would say that that makes it a pretty good book for Advent. Um, I've referenced a couple of times the preacher. Uh, Hebrews is even more so <clears throat> than Ephesians. If you remember, we talked about Ephesians, and we said Ephesians is kind of a letter in rhetorical form, so it's more of a sermon than it is just a letter. Uh, Hebrews is that times 10. Hebrews is a sermon uh, that was sent by mail. Uh, so it was like you uh, got one of Charles Spurgeon's sermons that somebody had dictated at the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, and sent it to you. That, that's what Hebrews is. So you have to think about it more uh, from an oratory. Uh, a, an oral perspective rather than something written. That's why there's no greetings in Hebrews. Like you notice, like he just starts in, right? Long ago, at many times, many ways, kind of like four score and 20 years ago, you know, our forefathers, it, it, it's a speech, it's a sermon, it's a piece of, uh, of oratory. Uh, it's not precisely a letter. And again, he, he's writing it to a people that are, are struggling. They're probably uh, Jewish Christians on the Italian peninsula. Uh, we say that they're probably Jewish Christians because of all of the references to the Old Testament that are in Hebrews. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than the priests. He's greater than the law. You know, he kind of shapes everything in terms of these wilderness wanderings and, and going through, strive to enter the rest that is before you. So there's very much a Jewish audience in 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 mind, but it's a letter that, that comes, or it's a sermon that comes uh, quite readily into our context. Here's how one writer puts it. He says, the preacher is not preaching into a vacuum, but rather he's addressing real and urgent pastoral needs, uh, ones that seem astonishingly contemporary. His congregation is exhausted they are tired. They're tired of serving the world, tired of worship. You know, he says to them, do not forsake the gathering together of yourselves as some of you are wont to do in, in Hebrews chapter 10. They're tired of worship. They're tired of Christian education. They're tired of being peculiar and strange and whispered about in society. They're tired of the spiritual struggle. They're tired of trying to keep their prayer life going. They're even tired of Jesus alone. Their hands droop, their knees are weak, attendance is down at church, they are losing confidence. The threat to this congregation is not really heresy. It's not that they're charging off in the wrong direction. They don't have enough energy to charge off anywhere. The threat here is that worn down and worn out, they will drop their end of the rope and just simply drift away. Tired of walking the walk, many of them are considering taking a walk, uh, leaving the community, and falling away from the truth. Can you connect to that at all? Uh, just the fatigue of life, 
Uh, it's hard to get out of bed sometimes in the morning. Uh, whether it is relationships that we have, whether it's uncertainty about our future, whether you're young or old. I mean, we, we have anxiety about these things. We think about these things. How are we going to go forward? You know, whether it's conflict uh, in our homes, in our workplaces, you know, whether it's being peculiar and strange on a university campus, uh, in your workplace, in your neighborhood, we, we relate to the things that sort of uh, demanded this sermon of Hebrews come into the world of this little congregation. So what is it then that the preacher says to them? And this is where it just gets really instructive. Uh, it gets very uplifting and encouraging. And it's also just a beautiful uh, dousing of the truth uh, and, and the, the basic truth that will unite us and, and fortify us and lead us forward. Three things for you in terms of observation on that. The first is this. Look at where the preacher starts. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. This book starts with Jesus, and he does not quit. Uh, speaking of Jesus, calling us to look at Jesus, pointing to the sufficiency of Jesus, elevating the person of Jesus. He does not quit all the way throughout. And that is his main point. If you're looking for the main point of the sermon of Jesus, what it, or the sermon of Hebrews, what is the proposition? What is the thing that is true? It is Jesus. Jesus is the one. He is the final word of the Father. And you need to consider Jesus, he says. You need to see Jesus. You need to keep your eyes on Jesus. These are all sentiments that the preacher will continue to go forward. He says you need to go deeper in Jesus in, in chapter 6. Let us leave the elementary doctrines of Christ. Let's dive even deeper into the person of Christ. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. And then when he goes through and he's given us all these examples of faith in chapter 11, he comes to chapter 12 and he's driving home sort of the final application of what he wants to say. He says, therefore, since we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, uh, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings to us so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? Looking to Jesus, the founder, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is seated at the right hand of the glory of God. Consider him. I mean, over and over and over again, we see the, the subject of the message, the substance of the message, everything is pointing at Jesus. And, and so, 
if, if you are here this morning or as we come in this morning, the, the preacher wants to grab us by the shirt collar here or your ear. Mrs. Cortman did that in fourth grade. It hurt a lot. Uh, but, uh, you know, he wants to grab us by the ear and he says, Jesus, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the, the thing that we the person that we most focus on and we stay focused on, we fixate on, we fix our eyes on Jesus. Sometimes we want to add other things to Jesus. Uh, Eugene Peterson talks about just the tendency of, and we see some of that in the book of Hebrews. You know, he spends time talking about how Jesus is superior to, greater than the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament things. And perhaps it was so that the Hebrew Christians wanted to go back and have Jesus and the sacrifices, or Jesus and the law, or Jesus and anything. But the point that he's trying to make is it's Jesus and nothing. It's Jesus alone. It's Jesus who is the answer to our great need. He is the one who is the, the perfect manifestation of the glory of God. Jesus is the one who fulfills all of our great longings. And when we feel that it's Jesus and something... This is where Peterson says it's time to go back and to read our way through the letter to Hebrews again, because it's written for us who get too cute, uh, too religious, um, and, and we want to Jesus and in our Christian life. But in the letter, uh, we see it's Jesus and the angels, Jesus and Moses, Jesus and the priesthood. In our time, it's more likely to be Jesus and politics, Jesus and education, Jesus and morality. Maybe it's Jesus and Buddha or Muhammad if you're really enlightened. Uh, but this letter defeat, deletes all of the hyphens. It erases all of the ands. Uh, the focus becomes clear and sharp again. Our hope is God's action in Jesus. And we're free once more to, uh, to put our faith in him. The one human action in which we do not get in the way, but Peterson says, rather, we get on the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And, and if we are anywhere except Jesus, if we have Jesus and anything, then we are not in the way. And the writer of the Hebrews says, it's time to get on the way. So, primacy is Jesus. Why is that? Two reasons. One is just his power. Uh, his, his power as the one who is um, the creator, the sustainer, and the Redeemer. We're going to keep going through a lot of this. One of the things that just is interesting to me as he starts is he doesn't start by dumbing anything down. I mean, he throws us right into the theological deep end of the pool. Uh, you know, here is Jesus, the one through whom the world was made. Okay, 
Uh, here's Jesus, the one who upholds the world by the, the word of his power. Oh, maybe? <laughs> I, I don't know exactly what that means or, or how to think about that. I mean, what, what I mean to say is that these concepts are so huge. You know, when we begin to think about a God that created, uh, a God that upholds, a God that is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, uh, we're, we're grappling with deep, deep theological principles and truths here. But part of what the, the preacher wants us to understand, and I think you know this, is that if you want to be encouraged in your drooping hand, weak need life, you need to trust in a being, a person with power. They, they need to be greater than you. And if you don't understand it, that's actually a good thing. Like if you can't get your mind around everything theologically, philosophically that is being said here about Jesus, about God, about creation, about providence, about uh, redemption, all of that, if you can't get your mind around that, keep pushing. The gospel's not unreasonable, but you are not God. And, and by acknowledging that we don't understand everything, we acknowledge that we are not God. If we could understand it, if we claimed that we had it down, then we would be, in a sense, putting ourselves in the place of God because we would say, we understand all of this. Now, that's not to say that, uh, that the gospel doesn't make sense. It's not to say that... There isn't perspicuity, if you know that word, a clarity in the scriptures, uh, that especially with regards to salvation. And we're told here that Jesus is not only the creator and the sustainer of all things, but he is the one who is the victor. He, he made redemption for our sins, and, and he sat down at the right hand of God the Father. Uh, we're, we're given a very clear picture here of our need uh, of Jesus' making redemption by going to the cross, by offering himself as a sinless person, as a sinless being for our sin, and that speaks to our redemption. And, and as we put our faith in him, these things are clear. These things are clear in the scripture. But when it comes to Jesus as God, we have power. And, and, and that is so encouraging to me as I try to make my way through the minefields of life, through the storms that come upon the sea. He is the creator. He is the sustainer. He is the redeemer. But he's also our friend. And I say that because of the... the the other thing that really jumps out at this is just the personhood of who this Jesus is. Uh, three images that were given here in, in, in uh, verses 1 to 4. Uh, the first one is this image of the Word. Uh, the text there says, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. God always speaks. 
it, it's one of the things that's instructive as we, as we go through this is we realize the importance of the spoken word. Think about that. Um, you know, John 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. The word was God. Uh, it was by means of speaking that God brought creation into being. Uh, how is it that, that Paul says in Romans that we are saved? It's by the, the hearing, right? Uh, it, it's by the hearing of the word. Some, we're such a literacy-heavy society uh, that sometimes we think that reading is the highest uh, sort of thing. Like if we write it down, if we read something. But actually this, this process of orality, of, of speaking and hearing, and it, the Bible is actually kind of consumed with that and, and talks about it in, in various different ways. And, and what the preacher here is saying, he's saying long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our forefathers by the prophets. Incidentally, it's one of the reasons why we actually think preaching is important. It's, it's different than just sitting and reading your Bibles. Uh, you know, it's that unction that Mark was talking about. You know, there is, there's something about the spoken word uh, that is unique. So you can think about that a little bit. But what he's saying here with regards to the prophets, God has always spoke by the prophets, but it was many times in many ways uh, you know, poly, he uses that prefix with regards to what he's saying here. And he's not just saying that it was different times uh, and different places. What he's actually saying here is the prophets came and they spoke a fragment of the, uh, the actual re revelation. So as Malachi or as Isaiah or as David or Moses or any of the other people who we account as prophets in the Old Testament, as they were proclaiming, they were proclaiming a peace. It was sort of fragmented off, but the totality of the story, uh, the finality of the story, he says, in these latter days, God has spoken to us by his Son. So the prophets were a fragment of the story that Jesus is the finality of the story. And that's exactly what Jesus said. You remember to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, uh, Luke chapter 24, beginning with the Moses and the prophets, he told them everything that was about himself. Uh, Jesus is the, the integration of everything else, of all of the fragmentation that the prophets brought into the world. Not that they were uh, inaccurate, but they were just incomplete. We didn't see the whole story in its clarity until Jesus came into the world. Some ways, uh, somebody has said, this was God's mic drop moment. You know, when, when Jesus came and said, this is it. There's nothing more to be said. He is the final word. So he's the word. Three images here, and they really speak to the personality, the personal touch of God. The first is the word. We'll get back to this in a minute. The second is the radiance of the Father's glory. You see that? The radiance of the glory of God. Uh, so glory of God. 
We, we see all sorts of manifestations of glory in the Old Testament, throughout the Bible. If we were to sum up the glory of God, I would maybe describe it this way. Take all of the attributes, you know, these characteristics of who God is, and put them all together. Uh, you've got His majesty and His holiness and uh, His mercy and His justice and His aseity and His, you know, all of these different attributes, both communicable and incommunicable, and put them all together, and that's the glory of God. You know, we, we realize that when we come up to the glory of God, that we are not approaching someone who is like ourselves, but we're approaching somebody who is wholly different from ourselves. And there were times, you know, we think about in the Old Testament, there were these times where uh, the, the glory of God would be manifest. Uh, so you can think about the dedication of the tabernacle or the dedication of, of the temple when, when Solomon was praying. And if you remember, you remember what happened during those times? This, this fire would come down and would fill the place and, and people would be overwhelmed with the, the manifestation of God's glory. God's glory, we're told, leads the Israelites through the wilderness. And if you remember, there was a, a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud that led them, uh, that covered them, that stood behind them and protected them from enemies. And we're told that that was actually God who was in the fire and in the cloud leading them. And, and most likely what the, the preacher is saying here is that when we see the glory of God, we're seeing Jesus. He is the, the radiance of the Father's glory. He is the one that emanates from the source that we can see, that we can apprehend, that we can feel its power. He's the radiance of the glory of God. And then the last image that he uses here, it says he's the exact imprint. What does he say? Uh, the exact imprint of his nature, of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. It's the only time that we're, we're talked, this is talked about in the New Testament, this idea of the imprint of his nature. And Again, the, you know, theologians, the church itself has just sort of battled to try to understand this all throughout the history of the church. If you know your church history, you know that the first, you know, four, five, six centuries even were, were taken up with all of these Christological controversies. What exactly does that mean that it's the exact imprint of the nature? But the image is that of a signet ring. Uh, so the, the idea of imprint is, is a character, that's the word in Greek, and, and the way that it would work is that you would get a letter, you'd heat up the wax, and then you would make the, the imprint, the exact imprint, the, press the character into that, and the warm wax would receive that and would mold itself around it. And that would speak to the authority uh, the representation of the person, um, and, and that, would, that would be what would carry that letter into dark and dangerous places, all of that. And, and that's what 
That's what we're being told here. This is who Jesus is. He, is. he is the Word. He is the radiance. He is the imprint. He is the one that comes into our world to touch it. And I think that's what holds all three of these together. If you think about it, the Word, the radiance, and the imprint are, are all the, the, the things conceptually that touch humanity. When I speak right now, there are waves going through the air that become words to you because they are impacting with your eardrum and, and they are resonating in such a way that you can understand it. It's, it's the spoken word that resonates and creates meaning in your life. It's the radiance from the sun. The sun is up there. It's the source and it sends its radiance down and it's the rays that, that we capture and that we love to soak in, you know, on a wet and cold and dreary day. We love the sun because it, it warms us and it touches our skin. It's the imprint that goes into the wax and molds it, and shapes it, and, and gives it meaning. You see how all three of these things speak to us really of the incarnation. Because it's Jesus that came from the Father. Now again, Jesus and God are one in, in, in sort of emphasizing the aspect of Jesus that touches into this. I'm, I'm not trying to say that, you know, that they're different beings or anything. Again, Christology is, is so deep. But we do understand from this that God meant to come in and to touch us. He meant to break into history in such a way that we were impacted. It wasn't just an idea. It wasn't just out there. But it, it comes in and it impacts us through our ears and in our hearts and at our very core of our being because ultimately we have a personal God. This isn't just the disembodied logos. This is the Word made flesh and dwells among us. Why? Because He loves His people. And He wants to have a relationship with people. He doesn't want to be. He's not just a disembodied idea. But He is flesh and blood, contemporary, come down in order to touch to impact us. Now, here's the thing, and maybe this is the question for Advent as we go. Are you ready to receive Him? Because in order for a ring to impact, to imprint the wax, the wax has to be soft. It needs to be warm. It needs to be malleable. If, if the wax is hard, the, wing, the ring will ricochet and will not leave its imprint. In order for the rays to warm your body, you've got to take off your sunscreen shirt. 
You've got, to, you've got to be without the SPF 75 that is protecting your skin. This is the only time from the pulpit you're going to hear, don't wear sunscreen. But you cannot have on spiritual sunscreen if you expect the radiance of the Father in the person of Jesus to penetrate and to warm, to mark your skin, to bronze you up into the beautiful person that God intends for you to be. You cannot have distractions. You've got to uh, turn up your hearing aids. You've got to be ready to receive the message through all of the commercial din through all of the, the pain messages that we have in our life, whether they're emotional or physical, we've got to be able to hear the spoken word. And that's what Advent really invites us into. Listening, quieting our hearts, softening our dispositions so that we can hear Jesus, the final spoken word. Here's how John Stott talks a little bit about the primacy of Jesus uh, and how it comes into us. The one that we preach is not Christ in a vacuum, nor a mystical Christ unrelated to the real world, not even only the Jesus of ancient history, but rather this is the contemporary Christ who once lived and died and now lives to meet human needs in all of their variety today. To encounter Christ is to touch reality, or as we've seen this morning, to be touched by reality and to experience transcendence. Jesus gives us a sense of self-worth, personal significance, because he assures us of God's love for us. He sets us free from guilt because he died for us. He's made satisfaction, purification for sins. Uh, He uh, sets us free from the prison of our own self-centeredness by the power of his resurrection, from paralyzing fear because we know that he reigns. Uh, All the principalities, all the powers of evil have been put finally under his feet. He gives meaning to marriage and home and work and leisure, to personhood and citizenship. He introduces us into his new community, the new humanity that he is creating. He challenges us to go out into some segment of the world which does not acknowledge him, there to give ourselves in witness and service for him. He promises us that history is neither meaningless nor endless. For one day, and this is the parousia, you know, Advent, we get so focused on Christmas and what happened, but Advent is about us waiting for Jesus to come again. The, the second coming, the, what our hearts long for and anticipate in the brokenness. For one day, he will return to terminate history, to destroy death, and to usher in the new universe of righteousness and peace. See Jesus. Consider him. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to us through the prophet. But in these days, these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. Will you pray with me? Father, as we enter into this Advent season, we we do pray that we would be open to what you might do 
Lord, we come in like the Hebrews, tired, drooping hands, weak knees, exhausted. Uh, Some of us ready to drift away, maybe in danger of drifting away. Some of us already hardened, feeling that, that we've been gone for a little while. But Lord, we know that you are still at work. And we know that, uh, Jesus, you are the radiance of the Father's glory, able to penetrate even the hardest of hearts. And so we pray that in these next few weeks, as we end 2023, that our hearts would be open to what you are doing in our life. Come light our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.